Dr. James Huey is a psychologist. You are, are now currently in Goldsboro, but soon to be moving, Jim, right? Yes, we'll be leaving the land <laughs> of uh, McCall's Barbecue. We'll be heading out down to Atlanta. I'm Big Pete. I must tell you, Mr. Dr. Huey, when you see before, it's hard to call you doctors, but you are a doctor of psychology. Correct. Yeah. He brought me some barbecue from, what was the name of the place? McCall's Barbecue. Oh, and I see, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. That's you, that's the big one drawback of leaving that wonderful <laughs> part of the world. <laughs> uh, James, why are you leaving Goldsboro? Why are you leaving North Carolina to go to Atlanta, Georgia? Well, one is family, and second is I'm looking forward to developing some new friendship programs, and Atlanta looks like a land of opportunity in that respect. Tell us briefly what friendship is, and we'll come back to it in some detail a little later on. What is friendship? It's a program that's oriented toward helping people learn more about themselves. It's a process of self-learning. It's built on the idea that most of us like to talk and very few of us get around to having anyone listen to us. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we try to structure an opportunity for people to learn about themselves. And you go on a vessel. Hence the word friendship. It's a coined word, a coined phrase. Yes, we use the ships of Royal Caribbean Cruise Line. What does being... I'm going to use the word isolated on a vessel. Do that you can't isolate in a, in a meeting room somewhere or even in your den. Henry, that has been a mystery for me for the six <laughs> years that we've do, been doing it. I just have noticed that there is a, something about it, the insular atmosphere of a cruise ship that is different than us sitting with four walls around us. Or even if we were sitting out on the front lawn of this building. Interesting. We'll return to that in a moment tell people how they can participate in your French. And by the way, you're going to go on land occasionally from now on. Yes. You'll have both alternatives available. We're going to have both. Yeah. Dr. Huey, we've been talking about, I'm going to put a word on it. It may not be the exact phrase, but in the first hour we've been talking about getting along with each other and not liking black people, not liking white people, not liking Indians, not liking people who are different than you. I'm going to put a word intolerance on it. That may be too strong a word, maybe the wrong word. But help me out here. How can, in everyday life, I not feel that that happened to me because I'm white, or that happened to me because I'm black, or that happened to me because I'm Methodist, or that happened to me because I'm too short, or I'm too tall, or I'm too fat, or I'm too thin? How can I deal with that in everyday life? And that does happen to most people. We had one caller on who said, in essence, it didn't happen to him. I think you ought to be canonized if that's true, (laughs) because I think it happens to me, certainly I'll admit it. I don't like me doing that sort of thing. But it does happen to me. Does it happen to you? And how does one deal with that? Well, I think we're asking two things. And one is the idea of feelings. Feelings are not logical. Feelings are not rational. Feelings are not politically correct. They're not socially correct. They're just really the inner part of who we are. You know, God created us, and we are the unique human beings that we are. We're going to have feelings, and we're going to have those feelings as a result of our upbringing, what our parents said to us, our experiences in school, what teachers said, what our friends say. We're all influenced by this. So I encourage people to first always acknowledge what you feel. How do you mean deal with it? Do you say it out loud to yourself? Do you scream it out loud to a crowd? What are you talking about? Different people do it different ways. Some people do it by writing in their journals. Some people do it by confiding in a friend. Some people do it through prayer, you know, asking forgiveness. Different people have different ways in which they handle feelings that they're not comfortable with. But express them in some way? I believe that feelings need to be expressed. Feelings that don't get expressed kind of like emotional constipation. I really believe that. When you say express now, you don't mean for me if someone gets ahead of me in the uh, supermarket checkout stand, I shouldn't bap him in the nose. You don't mean that. Well, not unless you're willing to pay that price. Remember that word we talked about price before. If you're willing to go in for an assault charge, that's fine. But if you expect someone not to hit you back, then you're going to have to find another way. That's a very high price to pay. Mm, Interesting thought. 
So it's better to let it come out than to hold it inside and let it fester. Is that what you're saying? Finding the healthy way, the appropriate way. Now, you may find a way that would be suited for Henry. I must find a way that's suitable for James. Yeah, yeah. In your practice as a psychologist, are we more intolerant to others today, less intolerant, or about the same as we were 30, 40, 50 years ago? My own impression is that we really haven't changed that much. I think there is more study, more awareness than there used to be when I started, you know, 30 or so years ago. But there isn't really that much of a difference. I think we go more intolerant of some things that maybe we weren't so intolerant because we didn't know about them. In other words, our world, when I grew up, was a very small southern town. Sure. And it was just those people. Now... I did not even know where Thailand was, much less people from Thailand sure. or something from one from South America. Most of the people were either white or black. The religion was all very much the same. Almost everybody was Southern Baptist. <laughs> there wasn't really any other religion in which to develop intolerance. In for. my hometown of Rockingham, I don't remember there were any Catholics. I remember one time a Catholic family moved into our school area. And it was, you know, like, this beats people from another world. Right. Who are they? Yeah. I mean, as I say, I grew up in a small southern town where I knew everybody on the block. My parents could let me go down to the movie theater downtown, and they would not worry about strangers being around and you know picking up and kidnapping children because everyone between our house and town looked out for everybody else's children. There was not the differences. Everyone was much more homogeneous in their background of religion, the kind of work they did, the education. It was a much more congenial because everybody knew. Now we're living in a world where we can live in big apartment complexes and you don't know your neighbors. You may not know the person who lives to either side of you. And that's true in small towns now, not just cities. Right. Yeah. So you're saying that human beings haven't changed so much as the world around them has changed, the influences on I them? I believe that we have remained fairly consistent as people, as human beings, our needs. But I do believe our world has changed. And one of the real characteristics of us as human beings is we resist change. We really don't like our world to change. Uh, James, maybe you know these figures better than I. I think there are more people belong to churches and synagogues than, than ever before now, percentage-wise, aren't there? Well, and even the churches have changed, in other words. Well, that's true. Because the church I grew up in... Everyone knew everyone. We had picnics out on the lawn after church services. We would have the evening services. And now you go to some of these big churches, and it's just amazing in the parking lot. Just trying to find a parking space, you see hundreds and hundreds of people. You don't know who they are. Instead of one pastor that took care, you have a pastor and 16 associates. Oh, you're talking about the church is changing. I went to a funeral uh, this past week, and a very, 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 I'm stressing very, very, very important man that I happened to know just casually was at the service. We were chatting after the service, and he said, you know, I go to a church almost every Sunday, but this is the first time. By the way, they, they sang Precious Memories and Amazing Grace. It's a great old church. He said, that's the first time I've been able to recognize a song in years. He said, at my church, they sing those grand anthems, and I don't know what they're singing about. Never heard them before. And I, that's a point, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? Most churches today, certainly the big churches, you don't hear Amazing Grace and Shall We Gather at the River as often as you did when you were kids, do we? No, the world changes. And that's not necessarily wrong, it's just different. Well, I knew a music director at a Baptist church, and he said the congregation and the music director have two opposite goals. The music director is to bring in new music, and the congregation wants to stay with the old favorites. They want to sing Amazing Grace every Sunday. Sure, sure. Caller, hi, you're on the air with Dr. Uh, James Hewitt. And, uh, Doc. Yeah. How y'all doing, sir? Fine. Good to hear from you. Okay. My problem is, 
I get along with anybody, any race, and and uh, I kill a, a happy go lucky smile on my face, and this jolly all the time. If that's good, and I can meet a total stranger, if he listens, I can hold a conversation with him. That's good or bad? I know this man. He's telling absolutely the truth. He never met anybody he can't sit down and talk to, and they talk to him. Is that is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I would say the fact that he's probably got lots of friends and lots of people enjoy being around him, and he's probably got a very healthy approach to life. I would gather it that he's a healthy individual if he can do that. Well, okay, well, good. Then, you know, I get feedback from other people. I say, well, I didn't, you know, other people say, well, it's blah, blah, blah. I just can't, you know, do like other people. It's just my nature. Yeah, in other words, some people, I don't see color. Some people are suspicious of you because you want to be a friend? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's true. It is true, isn't it? People say, what's he going to sell here? What's he got on his sleeve? Well, also, other people, if they are suspicious, they tend to feel that other people should be suspicious. John sounds like a very accepting person. Yeah, he is. One night I was at the basketball game, you know, and I went up and talked to Mr. Shin. And when I come back, a lot of people say, you talk to him? I say, he's just a person just like I am. I say, he the man on the horns. I said, you know, people, I think people doubt themselves because of who certain people are to go up and say something to him. Jim's nodding at you. I think he thinks that's a pretty healthy attitude. John is letting John be himself, which I think is probably one of the healthiest attitudes around. Don't let people pigeonhole you. Right. Don't let people say, here's what I want you to be, and I'm going to be that well, way. Well, no matter what you do, people will label you with whatever they want. The key thing for self is to recognize, hey, this is the way I am, and I'm okay with it. But what if the way you are is antisocial? Then hopefully you develop ways in which you can take your antisocialness, live with it, and not inflict it on others. Well, okay. Well, I just keep on doing it. All right, buddy. Keep on. Keep it on. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Do you mind if I read your little friendship poem here? This is terrific. It's a little reading that is on the back of Dr. James Huey's folder that talks about his friendship, uh, personal retreats at sea. And it says, what is a friend? Listen to this, folks. What is a friend? I'll tell you. It is a person with whom you dare to be yourself. Your soul can be naked with him. He seems to ask of you to put on nothing, only to be what you are. He does not want you to be better or worse. When you're with him, you feel as a prisoner feels when he's been declared innocent. You do not have to be on your guard. You can say what you think, as long as it is genuinely you. He understands those contradictions in your nature that lead others to misjudge you. With him, you breathe freely. You can avoid your little vanities and envies and hates and vicious sparks, your meanness and absurdities, and in opening them up to him, they are lost, dissolved on the white ocean of his loyalty. He understands. You do not have to be careful. You can abuse him, neglect him, tolerate him. Best of all, you can keep still with him. It makes no matter. He likes you. He is like fire that purges to the bone. He understands. You can weep with him, sin with him, laugh with him. Through it all and underneath, he sees, knows, and loves you. A friend? What is a friend? Just one, I repeat, with whom you dare to be yourself. Wow. Are you that kind of friend to somebody? Do you have somebody who's a friend of you like that? This is my goal. I don't 
can't join the canonized group who would you know be able to meet every expectation. But I do believe that's a worthy goal for me, and as well as one that I hopefully can offer to other people. I have a couple of people I think would fit that category. I'm not sure I can fit it from their standpoint, not me, myself, to them, but them to me, they fit that category. And I'm pretty lucky, aren't I, to have people like that? Very much so. And and they're the very epitome of what we're talking about, and to some degree, tolerance. Because we're saying someone who lets you be you, rather than having a hidden agenda of, Henry, I'll be your friend if you'll change to meet my expectations. But, Jim, how do you find a friend like that, or do they find you? And after the finding has been done, whichever way it comes, how do you nourish it? How do you keep it? How do you sustain it? To me, friendships are very much a two-way street. In other words, it's not something I go out and find or people find me. It's a mutual thing. We are both looking for having needs met. That may be companionship. That may be sharing time together. maybe sharing activities together. It can be a number of ways but we are attracted to each other. And if a friendship only comes one way, then generally it will wither and die. It needs to be nurtured at both ends. Now, friendships evolve as needs change over the years. I feel very fortunate to have had friends for up to 50 years. Well, that's wonderful. But once again, I'm also aware that a lot of my friends who were great people, but their needs change, our paths diverged. And I let say that's okay. People can change. I can change. And you fall away from friendships? Do you say, gee, he or she was a great friend of mine, now we're not for some reason? Can that happen? I believe that the friendship comes kind of like an inactive status. No matter what I do, I still only have 24 hours a day. Each year, I meet hundreds of people. On the ships and everywhere else I go, I meet hundreds of people. I interact with a significant number of them. If I kept every friend, I might have, what, maybe someone like Bill Clinton who has 5,000, 10,000 friends. I can't keep up with that many in a 24-hour day. So they do change, and you yes. change. Yes. Yeah, but if you're lucky, you can sustain one over 30, 40, 50-year period or longer? Yes. Yeah. As you're talking about friendship, can we also interchange the word love in that? Are they two different emotions, love and friendship? Well, I believe they go together. I believe you can have friendship without love, and I can have love without friendship, but I do believe they're both richer when you have them mixed together. Yeah. Uh, in a marriage, in a love relationship... Is there a cutoff point to each individual person that says, I am being used here? This person loves me, I think, and I love them, but they are using me. They're using my love and my friendship. Uh, That happens often in relationships. What's the flag that tells you that, and what do you do once you're convinced that is happening to you in your love? Well, being loved does not preclude one from exhibiting negative behavior. In other words, if you have feeling of attraction and love for a person, you can still exhibit negative behavior toward that person. And if you have that feeling, the first question is, okay, what is the feeling? Where is it coming from? But what am I going to do about it? Now, that can range from anything from confrontation. It can be talking with a friend about it. It can mean a number of things. Maybe someone who wants to go to a book and read. Maybe they want to talk to a psychologist. Maybe they want to talk to their pastor. Whatever they choose, when they feel a negative emotion, as we mentioned earlier in the show, that needs to be resolved. If it just stays inside, it becomes a festering. I'm being abused. I'm being abused. Look, they just abused me again. And they start collecting stamps. And, you know, kind of like those old green stamps, sure, except these sure. are anger stamps. Yeah. They're angry at being abused. You're putting black marks by their name. Mm-hmm. And then if I get a certain number of stamps, we'll do just like the old green stamps. You cash it in. You know, then you can uh, justify maybe beating the person, abusing the person. Maybe you can swear at the person. Maybe you can justify leaving the person. 
whatever it is, the negative feeling is not the bad part. The bad part to me, and I say bad, I mean unhealthy. The unhealthy portion is not addressing it. What am I going to do about it? Oh, good point. Now, there are people listening to us right now I know that are in a marriage relationship or a, a love relationship outside of marriage, whatever the circumstance is, that they say, I love this person enough that I will accept their abuse. I will accept their ignoring me. I'll accept their physically assaulting me. And society has a habit of putting labels on this as unhealthy. What's your thought about that? Well, I would agree because, once again, from my perception that healthy relationships do not abuse at one another. Physically or emotionally or anyway. They don't. Now, that doesn't mean they don't accidentally sometimes slide over because we're humans. We make mistakes. But the basis of the relationship is my relationship with you is to try and make your life better. I hope your gift back to me is to enrich my life also. But if we're not doing that, then once again, I have a choice. Do I try to change you, which is almost guaranteed to fail? And that's what's happened so often. People will come and say, how can I change him, her, the kids, whoever? I know he has this awful habit or way of life, but once we marry or get together, I'll change him or her. It doesn't work, does it? And if he hits you before or if she hits him before marriage, or drinks or whatever, or anything, it is not likely to change. You're not going to change them very often. But it never gives up. I would say that probably... 85% of the people who come into my office want to change other people. And very few recognize, hey, I'm the one that's having the difficulty coping. I might have to look at me. Ooh, I might have to change? I might have to change. It's easier to change me than it is my partner, my loved one? Well, I don't know whether it's easier, but it's certainly more healthy in the long run because you are in charge of controlling yourself. But now when you say change, does that entail, and you, you know this from being a southern boy born and raised, That in the South especially, in the old days, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, women would stay with men because they were the mister. Mm -hmm. And God intended them and society intended them to stay together. Even though the mister might have been a rounder, might have been a whoremonger, might have been a drunk, might have been an assaultive, abusive person, but they stayed because he was the mister. Now, I look back on that and I've seen that in my own family. And I know that was wrong. What's your thought? See, once again, if we're talking about Henry and James's value system and we're talking about the price that you and I would be willing to pay, we're not willing to pay that. We're not willing to put up with that kind of abuse just because someone has a role of mister. But once again, I don't believe I, as a friend, mm-hmm. as a psychologist, have the right to judge other people. So you're saying if, if the price they're paying to stay in that relationship is what they want to pay, that's okay for them? Well, they have to choose that. If they're willing to take you know, broken bones and all the false lies and the false promises and all the rest, if they're willing to pay that price, then I don't believe I am the divine uh, interpreter of you know all the knowledge in the world. But we're paying you, doctor, to, to have this thought. That's what we come to you for as a psychologist. What you come for me is for you to look at yourself and say, what is the price I'm paying? Ooh. Do I want to pay? In other words, last time you told me very clearly, you said, you're playing unfair. You're requiring us to think right. and feel. That's right. Yeah. Because that's what the hardest work is. Not to give you advice. Not to tell you what to do. I mean, the world is full of people eager to give advice. The world is full of people who are very willing to tell you how to live your life. But it's very hard to come into a person like that friend who will say, hey, I'm here for your benefit. I'm here to listen to you and help you sort out what you need to do. Not use the James Huey system of values. 
but to develop your own. So your value then, and other, as you see, other psychologists, psychiatrists, and, and counselors, their job is to listen and, and listening to my problem make me think about my problem? Well, listen, but also do things like teach you to learn how to listen to yourself. Mm-hmm. Most people don't learn how to listen to themselves. They haven't developed that technique. But learning how to listen to themselves, learning how to gather knowledge so they can make a healthy choice. A lot of people say, I don't know how to choose. I've never been through the process. I've always lived in situations where my parents made choices for me, my the schools made choices for me, my boss tells me everything that I need to do. I don't have any experience. I don't have any knowledge. I don't have any skills in how to really make a choice. All kinds of things are going through my mind. I'm sure the callers want to call and talk to you, too. But I do want you to take advantage of this man. I just think the world of him because he does make you think. And by golly, that hurts sometimes, but he does make you think. So those of you who want to participate in the program, we welcome you. And we're taking calls at 570-1110. If you do not want to get on the air, we understand. If you'd rather just call up and ask a question through Wendell Black, you'll write it down and bring it to us. Uh, here's a question, Dr. Huey, if you don't mind. A woman was in an accident. She went to surgery. Did not cry, did not have an emotional experience doing that. But when at home by herself, she started to cry heavily, seemed like a delayed action. What causes this? Is this healthy, unhealthy, rational, irrational? What are your thoughts? Well, it sounds like a trauma uh, in the sense that, once again, some people have an immediate impact. Some people have a delayed it's kind of like uh, sometimes if there is a death, some people get very upset that you should break into tears and cry and wail and so forth immediately. Other people go, no, I've got to take care of business. I've got to get my world structured. I've got to kind of feather the nest. And then I will let down the barriers. And then I'll really let myself feel all the pain, all the hurt. We do it differently. And that must, a, it well, doesn't mean she's wrong or in error or insensitive. It just means that's the way it triggered her this time. She is a unique creation. She is a unique human being, I believe. Everybody is, though. And because of that, I try very hard in my dialogue and my interaction with people not to lay judgments and blame. In other words, if that's the way she is choosing to handle that pain and grief, then I believe that that's a okay. Yeah. So now, she shouldn't burden herself with any doubts or misgivings. Well, unless she once again wants to do yeah. so. What about, you mentioned death. James, is there a correct way to tell somebody, I'm sorry this happened, or are you just being there and touching them or shaking their hands? Is that enough to say, I'm here and I'm concerned? In other words, a lot of people, as I am, are uncomfortable. What do you say to a bereaved person at a funeral? I find what fits James Huey, and I say, I am here and I can, some people... I just touch. Some people I just give a hug. Some people I cry with. Some people I say some words. Whatever happens to fit my relating with that person, I try very hard to avoid a stop. I'm going to touch or I'm going to say, please call me. You know, If there's anything I can do or any of those other stock phrases, I try to let myself feel for that other person. And when I do, it comes. Well said. The old thing about maybe he or she or they are better off ain't necessarily so. That's not a good thing to say, is it? Well, it's something that I would have difficulty because, once again, I'm not God. I don't know. I believe that there are certain situations where I think they would be better off, but that's not the person I'm saying it to. Yes. And I want to really be sensitive to what they are needing at that moment. In essence, what you're saying is, again, be yourself. Be myself. What you think is right. And a lot of times, just being there and saying... Henry, how are you? That's enough. It is. You cared. Right. 
Our, our phones are ringing. Let's go to the phones here. I'm talking too much. Hi, caller. WBT, you're on the air with Dr. James Huey. Hello? Yes, hello. In my reading today, I came across this statement, and I think it relates to that lady's trauma a little bit earlier. How can I or we learn to suffer creatively? <laughs> I see suffering nearly every day, but I don't see a lot of creativity. And what do you mean by creatively, caller? When you're suffering, how can you in your suffering be creative with it and that it doesn't do damage to you? Oh, I got you. Oh, I understand. James, I think you do too. How, how do you turn a negative into a positive, I guess is the, the shorthand way of saying this. Well, and also, I believe part of this is accepting self is that there are some negative things that do happen in life. The question is, how do we choose to handle Good them? things happen, bad things happen to good people. And that is part of it. And part of it is pain. Part of it is suffering. One of the ways I do it and once again, I believe, and that's part of retreat, is saying, how do you handle it? What are some options for you? One of the ways I handle it is, of course, sharing it. I'm a very verbal person, and I spend most of my life listening to others. So when I hurt, one of the first things I do is find someone who tries at least as close to that description as possible, letting me hurt, letting me be feel pain. They're not trying to shortchange it. They're not trying to say, don't feel bad, or they don't try to bring out platitudes, well, you really shouldn't feel bad. There are people worse off than you. They just let you talk? They just let me talk. They accept whatever I say. They don't need, feel a need to fix it. They don't feel a need to judge it. They don't feel a need to get a blame. They just let me be me. That's how I handle it. If they say, for example, something like, well, have you thought of doing this? Maybe that's what the caller is saying, creative. Having someone who may not be going through what you are who can give you an alternative, a suggestion. Mm-hmm. See, I believe we all need people. We really do yeah, need yeah, other I people. Do too. I do too. And if I'm going to suffer, first is I'm going to acknowledge the fact that I suffer. Caller, what do you think of that? That's very good. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Caller, hi. Thanks for holding. You're on the air with Dr. Huey. Hey, Henry. Hi. This question is about my sister. Mm-hmm. My sister's involved in a relationship. She got married um, after she'd known this fellow about three months, and they were married within six months. And it's become not a physically or really emotionally abusive situation, but he's spending all her money. And then their whole relationship is based on deceit. Since they were married, which was about two years ago, she's found out it seems like every other month something pretty big that he's lied about. Anyway, series of deceits. She just recently has become really concerned. It's like she's let things pile up and pile up until she thought about leaving him. And and my family was pretty pleased to hear that she was kind of going to wake up and smell coffee. um, Caller, let me interrupt you a second. Henry here. Is this the way you see the relationship or is this the way your sister sees the relationship or both? Both. Okay. Um, I think I've been her primary confidant okay. about this. I guess you're asking what you should do about this, well, if, if anything? The, my, my biggest concern is that all of a sudden she's decided that he can change. And I heard I was driving home from, oh. and I heard the doctor talking about uh, He doesn't believe in that. Is there somebody I could put her in touch with? Should I stay out of it? Okay. Doctor? First thing that I would say is you are a sister and that being a sister has certain opportunities for support caring regardless of the choices your sister makes the chances of your sister if she wants to develop a fantasy that her husband can change then once again i believe that that i'm willing to be there supportive and offer that but once again i don't see that it's up to me to judge that you know if she selects to believe in that fantasy 
that I have to say, no, you can't believe in fantasy. You've got to live here in the real world. You can't go in and live a Walt Disney kind of existence. Well, now, are you saying that from your standpoint or from the sister's standpoint here? I mean, from this caller's standpoint. From her as a sister, I'm encouraging her to go ahead and accept that her sister is making decisions that she would not agree with. Okay. That's tough, though. Caller, that's tough, isn't it? Really? That's tough. When you see a loved one that you know is making a screw-up, you just keep quiet, Jim? Are we talking to help ourselves? And sometimes we just give advice because we want to say, hey, I've done what I can. Mm-hmm. Or I told you so. I want to change you because I'd like to make your world better. I care about you. But one of the real hard things about it is no matter how much you love them, it's still their choice. Wow, wow. caller. That's tough. Oh, so I think he gave you a tough bone to chew on here. Back off and be supportive, but not be so verbal about my opinions. Well, once again, does she ask you for your opinion? If she does, well, she, fine. I don't know. She hasn't said. Well, then see that once again. She, I think you're asking. Told me these things, and I've responded with what I thought. Well, then my guess is you're already meeting her needs because, once again, she is saying, please come and give me a safe place where I can unload, where I can tell you these things. Maybe I can tell them, uh, and you'll keep them in confidence. Maybe you won't be overloading me with advice. Maybe you won't jump in and feel a need to fix my world because, you know, maybe if you give me enough time and enough support, I'll finally figure out how I want to handle it. Sister, I love you. Whatever your decision you'll make, I know you'll make in, in good confidence, and I'll back you up. Right. And, and meanwhile, I'll listen to you. And I'll listen to you. And we'll go over that same point over and oh, over. That's tough. Jim, that's tough. Caller, oh. good luck to you. Good luck to your sister. A woman off the air didn't want to come on the air. She's interested in the fellow. She feels he's very attached to his mother, and she feels the mother is very domineering of him. Should she pursue this relationship, Jim, if the relationship is pursued... How does she handle the mother-son relationship she's not sure is all that healthy? First, I would encourage you to recognize that it's not likely to change. And if she is willing to pay the price, my guess is she has doubts as to whether she's going to pay the price. I don't think she's ready to take a domineering mother-in-law. I think she's going to probably have some doubts as to whether this husband is more attached to the mother or to the marriage. I think there will always be doubts in her mind. Whether she is willing to do that, I once again, I can't tell her because I'm not the one marrying you. It's the price. You you make choices every day in your life, don't you? And every you, day. And you ask what, you should ask, what price am I paying for this choice I make? Financially, spiritually, emotionally, socially. In other words, this is going to take some social price in this relationship. It's going to take emotional price, too. But chances are, as she describes it, and we're only hearing her side of the story, Mama isn't going to change, and son isn't going to change most likely. Well, see, even if the relationship isn't as she sees it, she sees it this way, and therefore she can only make her choice based on how she sees it. Perception is reality. See, that's why you and I can't make it, because we're not one that's in that situation. It's good to see you. I know Atlanta's further than Goldsboro, but not that further. Would you come back and see us again? I would be pleased to, Henry. Thank Thank you for having me. 